Hello and welcome back to the podcast where today I'll be continuing on with my book. I'm going to be delving into the introduction today of Minding the Brain Towards Change. What willpower really means for addiction. And so this is my book that I published back in 2017, as we mentioned in the previous episode around the preface and the book details. So we'll be jumping into that now. Without further ado, I'm going to start off with a quote. And this quote comes from a man called Victor Emil Frankl. He was a Holocaust survivor back in the Second World War. And he wrote an amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning, where he recounts a bit of a memoir of his experiences. And given that he had a background in psychiatry or neurology at the time, he developed a psychotherapy called logotherapy, which reverts back to meaning and developing meaning in one's life, indeterminate irrespective rather of the personal situations and the encounters that one has. So let's jump on into his quote. Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. End quote. Let's jump into the introduction. In his powerful memoir, Man's Search for Meaning, the Holocaust survivor and psychiatrist Victor E. Frankl said that a person's will to meaning was their primary motivational force. What did he mean by this? Essentially, he was referring to the way one makes meaning out of what's happened in their life. To Frankl, this meaning is what motivates. When one finds meaning in life, they feel like they've got a purpose. They're energized, pursuing something of value. In fact, time and again, I've seen that when a person suffers needlessly and cannot find a purpose to that suffering, they're much more likely to develop PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. In the concentration camps, Frankl saw firsthand that these, that those who felt like they were suffering needlessly died a much quicker death than those who held on to some hope that their suffering was not in vain. But you're not in the concentration camp, are you? So why talk about any of this? The fact is that when you've lost your sense of meaning, you're in a prison of your own making. Meaning makes for movement. Frankl lived during a time where Freudian psychoanalysts guided people in uncovering deep-seated conflicts and traumas that they weren't even aware of, and using this newfound knowledge, acted differently. Footnote, psychoanalysis is a form of therapy where a person consults a psychotherapist to explore their inner thoughts and unconscious conflicts or drives. These conflicts or drives are freely associated by the client or patient. That is, they voice whatever comes to mind without trying to filter seemingly unnecessary details. And subsequently, they're interpreted by the therapist. This process over time allows the person seeking therapy to reach greater insight and move towards recovery. End footnote. Frankl lived at a time where a delirium psychologist proposed that those who felt more inferior, that is those lacking status, those at the bottom of the totem pole, those who are less confident, would be in the most trouble. During that time, Frankl took the bull by the horns and argued that it's more important to search for meaning and act on it. Just a little footnote around a delirium psychology. 
Adler, which was a psychologist, proposed that the recognition of your own inferiority in life allows you to develop a potential for self-actualization. This inferiority complex serves as a sort of ego bomb that serves, that leaves you rather, open to humility and therefore an openness to change. In fact, Adler himself, to get over his own fear of approaching women for a date, challenged himself to ask every woman he saw on a busy New York street corner out. After some time, his fear evaporated and he had few intimacy issues thereafter. End footnote. Back to the body of the book. Action is important. It's what you're here for. You weren't put on this planet to go through the motions and hope for the best. You might. If you're the type of person who thinks a lot, feel like thinking is action. Well, it's not. You are not what you think. You are not what you feel. You are not what you say. You become what you do. Doing something meaningful, even the smallest single step, leads to a better outcome than doing nothing. Think about it this way. Becoming 1% better each day at a particular thing will in a hundred days make you 100% the person you were 100 days earlier in that particular thing. As somebody once said, no matter how slow you're going, you're still doing laps around the guy on the couch. Frankel was thrown into the most brutal and notorious Nazi concentration camp of the Second World War as part of the final solution, Auschwitz. If there were any place a person could lose meaning, in life that was it. Think about the concept of the will. Now, will defined is conscious, deliberate action. In therapy, I've seen people quit drugs and alcohol cold turkey. They can go like this for some time. Occasionally, however, when life deals a bad hand, they go back to the substance for support. This is often the case in people who haven't prepared themselves for this option. Lapse beforehand. To describe this experience, I coined the term the David and Goliath effect. If you grew up in a religious home or are in any way steeped in Western culture at all, you've heard of the story of David and Goliath. I won't repeat it here, but to say that Goliath wildly underestimated what David brought to the table. David was a master slingman after all. Goliath was a warrior, had seen the face of battle since he was a kid, was the champion of the Philistine army at the time. There was no way he could lose. This mindset, although scaring the life out of anyone daring to cross him, led to an underestimation of the qualities his adversary brought to the table. The result? He got his head cut off after being knocked to the ground with a stone from David's sling. This can happen to anybody who feels overconfident in their abilities and lets down the guard. This lack of vigilance can lead to becoming overwhelmed and, in the case of addiction, lead to relapse. One could argue that willpower strength is responsible for one's commitment to initially getting off drugs and alcohol, but a lack of consistent discipline, that is, routine, action, despite motivation, leads to a return to the drug later on. Except, it's not quite as simple as that. You'll see why as this book progresses. I'm going to take a little bit of a side note and say some words around action despite motivation. I talk a lot about acting on something that you value despite feeling motivated to do it. Sometimes people feel motivated to do something, so they do it. Other times they don't feel motivated to do it, so they don't do it. But what discipline requires is 
being able to do something regardless of how you feel about it. It's about creating habits and routines and creating a way forward because you know what's around the corner. It is getting out of bed the first time the alarm clock goes off. It's stretching your muscles, even though you would rather run and brew yourself a coffee. It is drinking a glass of water, even though you don't feel like drinking a glass of water in the morning as soon as you get out of bed. It is doing something you would rather not do because you know it is something that ought to be done. That's what I mean when I say action despite motivation. In fact, action without motivation, but action that is disciplined and that is habitual will become part of who you are when it becomes part of what you do. Let's go back to the book. Why some can quit and others find it difficult got me to think about the science behind addiction, especially brain science. When exploring the literature, things started to come together. The catch? Well, I needed to look at the equation holistically. What does that even mean to be holistic? The definition of holistic, as I look at it, is something that's categorized by the assumption that it takes a whole bunch of parts, intimately linked and connected to make up a whole. What does this mean? Well, let's think about it this way. If a person has been using drugs for a few months, their brain begins to change. It might possess information differently. Rather, it might process information differently, slower or faster, depending on the substance in question. It might become hypersensitive to what's happening around it, lazy or anxious, stressed or depressed. If I were to become a holistic therapist, I needed to consider a whole bunch of factors. The past and the present, the future outlook, psychosocial supports, protective factors, nutrition, medical history, person's worldview, and a ton of other potentially inconspicuous idiosyncrasies. All of these having been influenced in one way or another by the factor of willpower. It's a nuanced approach indeed. And would you know it, this is when people began to complain. What I thought was an effective, holistic way of working with clients was seen by some as ridiculous. I soon found out that those who didn't like my perspective on addiction were mostly reacting to my focus on and my use of the word willpower. What does willpower mean? Willpower is the energy behind self-control. It's the ability to mindfully control your impulses and actions. Try as I might to define the term scientifically and apply it to addiction, some wouldn't have a bar of it. You're going back to the old moral model. You're crazy to think that addiction isn't a disease. You're wrong that willpower is all it takes. Yep, I kept practicing, writing and reflecting on my search for meaning drawing on lessons from my clinical work to consolidate my educational and experiential background. Basically, it was a way for me to become a better version of myself. Stick to your guns, I thought, and the rest will follow. Why this preamble? Well, I'll tell you. It's because of the outcomes. A client of mine told me that her reading the beginning of this book led to eight days and counting of no drug use. None. Zilch. She bit the bullet and rode the willpower wave so that she would go back and say, yes, I did it. This could be you too, or it could be the case for somebody you love. Side note, you do not need to read or listen to this book chronologically. You're not, if you're not built that way, don't do it. You can just as well get something out of this book by reading the chapters that interest you most, or listening to the episodes that interest you most. You've got my permission as the author to skip the parts that don't interest you. 
Now, let's dive in to the structure for a minute. In chapter one, I'll introduce the concept of addiction and define key terms. I'll discuss the basics of the human brain and how it's affected when a person decides to take drugs or drink alcohol. Chapter two, I'll talk about willpower, utilizing the field of neuroscience and physiology to paint a scientific picture of a practical construct. I'll review how glucose metabolism operates within the human brain and its relationship to willpower and addiction. In chapter three, I will combine and relate addiction and willpower from a practical point of view. I'll talk about how willpower relates to the absorption of glucose within the human brain and why this matters for addiction. I'll discuss how you could lose motivation and how to overcome this on the road to recovery through self-awareness and regulation. This chapter will also discuss nutrition. Chapter four will focus on philosophy. What does philosophy have to do with willpower and addiction? Read on, listen on, you'll see. Chapter five, we'll talk about love and attachment. This one's for all you lovebirds out there. Chapter six, we'll bring it all together, creating and listing a bunch of practical tips and tricks to live a happier, wholesome and healthier life. Chapter seven, will include afterthoughts, especially relating to the complexity of human life and how there may be some individuals who find it difficult to apply this learning due to things like suicidality and post-traumatic stress. And for those interested, there's a full-length bibliography, chapter notes and glossary at the back of this book. But with the audio version, you're going to be getting them scattered throughout the episodes that I'll be presenting to you. Also be recommended reading and practical tips at the end of each chapter. There won't be any practical ticks. Right? That's, that's probably going to make you feel a bit itchy. I look forward to getting on this journey with you. So let's jump on into it. And in the vein of uh, practical books that I'll recommend, Baumeister and Tierney, 2011, Willpower, Rediscovering the Greatest Human Strength, published by Penguin Group, London, UK. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to bringing the first chapter, which is aptly named Addiction, in the next episode. I hope you liked the introduction. If you have any questions, anything you wanted to ask at all, or any comments that you wanted to run by me about the content of this introduction, hit them through to me on social media or through an email on the Emil Barna podcast. Speak soon. Goodbye.